This podcast is a production of Faith Living Church. If you like what you hear, join us for church sometime in our Plantsville, Connecticut location, Saturdays, 6 p.m., or Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m., or online anytime at faithlivingchurch.com. Pastor Ron and Susan are away this weekend for a much-needed time of rest and refreshing. When Pastor Ron asked me earlier this week to share, continuing on the series that he started last week called The Path, I said, okay. (laughs) And then I started seeking God and asking God, what do you want me to share about The Path? Um... The video we just watched is actually someone who has been a tremendous inspiration to me. Her name is Dixie. That's her trail name because when you hike on uh, paths, you get a kind of like an alter ego nickname. Um, She started hiking with no backpacking experience about four years ago. She hiked the Appalachian Trail. Trails are marked with paint usually on trees or rocks or signposts. So the Appalachian Trail is marked by white blazes like that. My husband actually made me that for Christmas a couple years ago. I love the Appalachian Trail. My husband and I started hiking it in 2009. We decided we would hike the whole Connecticut portion because it is a long-distance trail that starts in Georgia and ends in Maine, and 51.6 miles of it go through our great state of Connecticut. When I found that out, I wanted to hike it, and he said, all right, we'll do it. So we decided to backpack. So this is a backpack. When you backpack, you carry everything you need on your back to live, to walk in the woods, to sleep in the woods, your food, your water, your blankets, your supplies if you need them. We started hiking in 2009. In 2011, I was diagnosed with two different kinds of arthritis. And I said, all right, that's it. I can't hike anymore because I have this thing, arthritis. And I was sitting on a couch having an arthritis flare up. And I caught one of this lady's videos. And I watched, I binge watched her whole hike of the Appalachian Trail because I didn't have anything else going on. And at the end of her hike, she posed a question in one of her videos and said, who can't hike the Appalachian Trail? And so she highlighted the woman who had started hiking when she was 100 pounds overweight and the blind man who hiked the AT with his seeing eye dog and the former vet with the prosthetic limb and the 70-year-old who hiked with her 40-year-old daughter. And I was like, all right, I get the message. So I started hiking again. And I can't hike the whole thing because I can't take six months off of life. But as of now, I've hiked uh, about 318 miles of the Appalachian Trail. And I'm going to keep going as long as I can keep going. So when I asked God to give me something to build on, he deposited a scripture in my heart. And I decided I'm just going to share some scriptures with you guys that have ministered to me along my path. And when I say minister to, I mean challenged by, because sometimes it's not just God ministering to you. It's God saying, I want you to become more like me and less like you, even though I'd like to stay more like me and less like him. So the first scripture that I want to talk about is found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. 
I'd like to tell you that that is one of my foundational scriptures because when I got saved in 1994, me and Jesus were on this straight path. Point A to point B. But, much like the path that those hikers were on, it's been very crooked since 1994. It's looked a whole lot more like this than like this. Can anybody relate? <laughs> and since that day when I accepted Christ, I came to him with a lot of trust issues. And God allows me to work on areas of my life that I struggle with so that way I can learn how to become more like him. So I did a little word study on the word trust in Hebrews chapter 3. In the Bible, this book right here, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. So the Old Testament word for trust in Proverbs 3 is a Hebrew word pronounced batach. B-A-T-A-C-H, batach. And yes, it sounds like you're spitting. And it means to have confidence, to be bold, to be secure, to be careless, to fear nothing for oneself, to be thrown on one's back, a place of vulnerability normally, kind of like a cat. Think of a toddler who doesn't have a care in the world. When we say careless, I don't mean, oh, you left the gas can next to the bonfire kind of careless. <laughs> I'm talking about your three-year-old son is jumping from the top step and not worried about where he's going to land, even though you might be having a heart attack. Think of a cat on its back. When a cat is snoozing in the sun, laying on its back, and its belly is exposed, it could go one of two ways for you. If the cat's all right with you scratching its belly, it's going to let it happen. But if it's not, its ears are going to dart out to the sides. It's going to start growling, and you should probably leave it alone. When I was thinking about how to communicate trust and what full and complete batak trust looks like, made me think of a story that I came across about six months ago, and I'd like to share a video on it because I think it kind of demonstrates that level of trust. If we can watch that video. Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as Blondine, was a famous tightrope walker and acrobat. He's perhaps best known for his many crossings of a tightrope, 1,100 feet in length, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls in the USA. His act will be watched by large crowds and begin with a relatively simple crossing using a balancing pole. Then he would throw away the pole and amaze the onlookers. On one occasion, he crossed the tightrope on stilts. On another occasion, blindfolded. Another time, he stopped halfway to cook and eat an omelette. In 1860, a royal party from England came to watch Blondin perform. After his normal spectacular crossings, he then wheeled a wheelbarrow from one side to the other as the crowd cheered. Next, he put a sack of potatoes into the wheelbarrow and wheeled that across. The crowd cheered louder. Then he approached the royal party and asked the Duke of Newcastle, Do you believe that I could take a man across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? Uh, yes, I do, said the Duke. Ah, hop in, replied Blondin. The crowd fell silent. But the Duke of Newcastle would not accept Blondin's challenge. Is there anyone else here who believes I could do it? Asked Blondin. No one 
was willing to volunteer. Eventually, an old woman stepped out of the crowd and climbed into the wheelbarrow. Blondin wheeled her all the way across and all the way back. The old woman was Blondin's mother, the only person willing to put her life in his hands. God bless Charles Blondin's mother. She had to have some level of trust in her son in order to trust him to get her across Niagara Falls, right? And I believe she had an extremely large level of trust in her son. I want to look at another word that I found for trust. It's in the Psalms. It's in Psalm 31, verse 1. I came to a place in my life where I realized... I wasn't trusting God the way that he wanted me to, the way that he was calling me to. So my prayer partner and I at the time just dove into this scripture and memorized it, and I've been chewing on it ever since. In Psalm 31.1, it says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Now, the interesting thing, in Psalm 31, there's a whole different Hebrew word for trust. So remember, in Proverbs 3, the Hebrew word for trust is a word, batach. In Psalm 31.1, the Hebrew word for trust is chaka. C-H-A-C-A-H, chaka. And chaka means to flee or to take refuge in and to hope for safety. Now, David wrote Psalm 31 when he was on the run, fleeing from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. And he was desperate for God's protection and covering. I'd like to look at one more psalm to kind of round out this idea of the two different kinds of trust that we're talking about right now. Psalm 25, verses 1 and 2, and verse 4. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Now, when I was a baby Christian, we would often sing songs at the church that I went to. And the songs that we would sing were scriptures that somebody had put music to. So I would like to share this song the way that I learned it. And the way that it still plays and sounds in my head when I say it. And if you guys know this song, I would really love for you to join in. And if you don't, maybe you'll learn a new scripture song today. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, oh my God, I trust in thee, let me not be ashamed, let not my enemies triumph over me, 
thank you, and thanks for those who sang along. I heard you. I appreciate it. Now, Psalm 31 was written while David was fearing and running for his life. Psalm 25, on the other hand, was written years later. And you can see the correlation because if you read further down in Psalm 25, David says, remember not the sins of my youth. See the correlation? David's trust in God grew. What started out as chikah became batach, as David trusted more and more in God. My own path definitely started out with very little trust. I didn't trust God. I only knew how to trust myself. I'm still on that path of learning how to trust God, and I'm sure I will be until I go home to be with Jesus. I'd like to share uh, some scripture, a story in the Old Testament about somebody else who had no experience with God, but decided to try and decided to trust God, even though she didn't know anything about him, even though she hadn't grown up knowing the Lord. Her name was Ruth, and she lived in a country named Moab with her husband, his parents, his brother, and his brother's wife. A famine hit Moab, and Ruth's husband, her father-in-law, and her brother-in-law all died during that time, which left just Ruth, her mother-in-law Naomi, and her sister-in-law Orpah. Naomi told both Ruth and Orpah to go back to their homelands, go back to their families, be reunited with their families, so that way they could have a chance to survive because there was no way they were going to make it if they all stayed in Moab together. Orpah was like, see ya. Like, I'm sorry that this worked out. I'm going back to my homeland. But Ruth made a different decision. Now, here's a little side note for those of you who are trivia buffs. Does everybody know who Oprah Winfrey is? So when Oprah Winfrey was born, her parents wanted to name her Orpah after the Orpah in the book of Ruth. But somebody misspelled the birth certificate, and that's why her name is Oprah and not Orpah, which I, she's probably glad she wasn't named after the daughter-in-law that said, I'll see you later. So in Ruth 1.16, Ruth said, urge me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. She's talking to Naomi here. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Naomi is not getting rid of Ruth. Ruth is making it very clear to her, I'm not going anywhere. Wherever you go, I'm going. So once Naomi knew that Ruth was going with her, they went back to Naomi's homeland of Bethlehem and tried to figure out how to survive. Naomi was an older woman by this point. Remember, she had adult children, and back in the Old Testament times, there weren't a whole lot of careers that a woman could choose if she had never worked, and she was an older widow. Ruth was still young. She had already demonstrated, look, I'm in this with you, Naomi. We're going to figure it out. We're going to make this work somehow. Naomi had a distant relative, and his name was Boaz. He was a landowner, and he had some wealth. He, has, he had land. He owned farm crops, he owned, he employed people, he owned livestock, so he was able to make a living for himself and employ other people. And he was a distant relative of Naomi's, so Naomi told Ruth to seek him out. Back in the Old Testament, an early type of benevolence was demonstrated, especially in the book of Ruth. Landowners during harvest time would leave the outer edge of their crop fields untouched, 
So that way, if somebody did not have enough money or means or could not feed themselves and their families, what would happen is the landowners would say, go ahead and glean from my field. I won't charge you anything, and I won't call the police that you're trespassing or anything like that. And that was a way for those in need to survive. So Naomi tells Ro uh, Ruth, go to Boaz's field and see if you can glean from his crops. Get them yourself, and you'll be protected because he's one of my relatives. As Ruth does so, Boaz himself notices her, and he approaches her. Let's read together in Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 8, about their conversation. Boaz went over to Ruth and said, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us while you gather your grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Now to summarize the further events of this story, Ruth continues to glean exclusively from Boaz's field, and Boaz falls in love with her. They eventually marry. Boaz joins Naomi into his own family, treats her like she's his own mother-in-law, and Ruth and Boaz have their first child. It is a son named Obed. Obed grows up to become the father of a man named Jesse. And Jesse grows up to become the father of a man named David, the guy who wrote Psalm 25 and Psalm 31 and 90% of the book of Psalms, King David. Now remember, in chapter 1, Ruth didn't even know the Lord. She referred to God as your God. But she started to trust the God that she didn't know. And she started to believe in the God that was Naomi's God and Naomi's family's God. She undoubtedly grew in that trust. And I, I believe that she also demonstrated that trust with her children, with her grandchildren, with her great-grandchildren. I want to talk about a reason, besides what we've already discussed when it comes to trust, that it's important to trust God. You don't have to look very far today to see that we live in a fallen and broken world. Trusting God equips us to navigate through this life. In John 16:33, and this is Jesus talking, so these are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have perfect peace. In the world you have tribulation and distress and suffering. But be courageous, be confident, be undaunted, be filled with joy. I have overcome the world. My conquest is accomplished, my victory abiding. I don't know about you, but I need to trust God when life storms come. 
And the scripture above doesn't say, if this storm comes. The scripture above says, it's coming. The storms are coming. Like being born into this world means you're going to have a storm. Nobody gets to escape without some kind of a trial. Your husband is going to lose his job. You are going to be diagnosed with something. Your child will have to have surgery. Your house is going to be on the market with no buyers for three years. These things are going to happen. And Jesus said, I'm already on the other side of that. I'm going to walk you through this thing that you're going through, and you're going to come out on the other side of it. If you choose to trust me, you're going to come out on the other side of it victorious. You're going to come out on the other side of it with peace and a joy that you shouldn't have because the world tells you you can't be peaceful when this is going on. You can't be filled with joy when this is going on. But Jesus said, yes, you can. You just have to choose to trust me. You just have to choose to trust me. And trust is a choice. It's a choice that we have to make every day of our lives. Are we going to trust ourselves? Or are we going to trust in the Lord? Okay. I'd like to share another picture, or a picture, and a story. And this is about a woman named Orlean Puckett. Can we have that picture? Yes. I apologize, it's a grainy photograph, but they didn't take very good pictures back in the 1800s, so bear with me. Has anyone ever been on the Blue Ridge Parkway? Yeah, a couple people? Yeah. So the Blue Ridge Parkway is a scenic highway of sorts. It was built in the 1930s and 40s, and it starts, I believe, in northern Georgia and goes into Virginia and stops right near where Shenandoah National Park begins. You can drive your car through the Blue Ridge Parkway and have all these scenic overlooks and all this beauty and nature and stuff. So at milepost 189.1 in southern Virginia, there are still remnants of things that were on the Blue Ridge Parkway before the parkway was constructed. And one of them is a cabin, and it's called the Puckett Cabin. It's the home of John and Orlean Puckett. Orlean Puckett was 16 when she married her husband, John. Their first child was born in 1862, but died a few months later of diphtheria. Of her 23 subsequent pregnancies, none of the children who were born alive survived more than a few days. Doctors now believe that Orlean had RH hemolytic disease. She had RH negative blood, I believe. Um, my own oldest daughter, Kristen, has RH negative blood. Nowadays, you get a shot when you're pregnant and another shot after you have your baby. And my daughter, Kristen, has five beautiful, healthy babies. Praise God. <laughs> Orlean Puckett had no babies, even though even though she had delivered 24 babies. I can't imagine. Orlean Puckett decided that she was going to trust God. She was going to trust God with her future when her greatest hope, that of having and raising her own children, never came to pass. When Orlean Puckett was 50 years old, a neighbor of hers went into labor and no doctor could be found. That began her career as it would come to be, 
and her name, the Mountain Midwife. For the next almost 50 years, Orlean Puckett traveled the Virginia countryside and through the Virginia mountains. She never charged for her services, and she became known for her compassion and her skill. Because if anyone knew what a woman in labor about to deliver a baby was going through, it was a woman who had already been there 24 times. The pain, the fear, the uncertainty, the whole process. She knew. She understood. She could identify with these women on a very personal basis. I've been pregnant five times, and I have four healthy children. But I had a miscarriage. I lost a baby that I didn't get to see, and I really look forward to seeing that baby when I get to heaven. And I lost one baby 26 years ago. I have no idea how Arlene Puckett could move past losing 24 children without trusting God, without putting her hope, depositing her faith in her Lord and Savior, and trusting that he was going to move her from the place that she was to the plan that he still had for her life. Orlean Puckett delivered her last child, child in the picture, her great-grandnephew, at the age of 94, the same year she died. And Orlean Puckett's story, I'm talking about it because we know about it. Because her story wasn't over when she couldn't have children. God used her story and used her to minister to other people in their greatest time of need. There is an organization today in North Carolina named after Orlean Puckett, and their sole purpose is to strengthen and enhance child, parent, and family relationships for both biological and adoptive families. Does everything always work out the way that we hope it will in life? Nope. Can we still choose to trust God if it doesn't? Absolutely. Remember what Jesus said back in John 16, We're going to have trouble. It's a byproduct of being born. We're going to have strife. We will have challenges on our path. And it's going to look more crooked than straight. But he is still trustworthy. And he still has a plan for us, even in the midst of our trials. And he's got a plan that goes beyond our pain. I want to piggyback another scripture onto John 16.33 that I didn't put in my notes because I didn't think about it till yesterday, but I think it's a further demonstration. I think Denise, was, Denise Lewis was kind enough to make sure it got in the PowerPoint. So thanks, Denise. <coughs> okay, that didn't sound like a Denise, but that is all right. <laughs> thanks, James. Um, now, this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Roman church, trying to encourage them. And Paul goes through and says that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. And he lists some things. Persecution, distress, famine, peril, the things that we have just talked about in John 16.33. And then in Romans 8.37, he says, Yet, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I've heard people say, and I've said it myself, 
I'm more than a conqueror. We're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. But don't forget the two words that come after more than conquerors. In him. And don't forget the three words after that. Who loved us. And the him is Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. And that is how we can be more than conquerors. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the only way that we can be more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. Jesus, who was God himself manifested in the flesh. Jesus, who left his earthly or his heavenly treasure to come to earth and begin a ministry. Jesus, who was born in a stable, borrowed from some, I don't know, innkeeper. Jesus, who was a carpenter's son. Jesus, who began his earthly ministry basically as a homeless man. He said himself, foxes have dens, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. That Jesus, the one who hung on a cross for me and you, the one who rose from the dead and said, you don't have to stay in your sin because I've already overcome it for you. You just have to trust me. This is my rechargeable headlamp. It is very lightweight. So far, I've used it for up to four days on a backpacking trip. And it hasn't failed me yet. When I've been hiking all day, backpacking with my backpack, and I end up at my camp for the night, and I set up my tent, and I make my dinner, and I need to do my camp chores, I use my headlamp so I can see. I had a headlamp before they had batteries, but I have definitely found myself on places like Ragged Mountain with a headlamp with dead batteries, and I have definitely had to hike off of Ragged Mountain with my dead battery headlamp. And I believe that some of my most effective prayers have occurred in those moments when I'm hiking down Ragged Mountain with no batteries in my headlamp. Hallelujah! <clears throat> when you can't see at night, when you don't have the vision that you need, you have to engage all five of your senses at the same time. And that is very stressful. And you don't know if that sound you just heard is a squirrel or a bear. And you can't see what it is either. So you've got to hope it's the squirrel and not the bear. It's not fun. I don't recommend it. I want to share a scripture with you that God deposited in my heart a number of years ago at a time where I felt like I didn't have a headlamp to get through something that I was going through. In Isaiah 50.10, it says, Who is among you who fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, yet who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust and be confident in the name of the Lord and let him rely on his God. And that servant they're talking about is Jesus. You can believe in God, you can trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you still might end up walking in darkness sometimes. And just to go back to trust, because that's in this scripture, the Hebrew word for trust in this scripture is that word batah, that carefree toddler, that, that kitty on his back waiting for you to rub his belly. That level of trust is the trust that God wants us to have, even when we are going through something and it seems like, 
We don't have any batteries for our headlamp, and we're just walking around in darkness. The darkness is not going to last. And God is not letting us walk through it alone. He's walking through it with us. Okay. I'd like to tell you one more story about an experience that I had recently and share one more picture. All right. I want, you to, tell, I want to tell you one more story, whether there's a picture or not. Um, so I've talked about backpacking. Oh, there it is. I've talked about backpacking, and I've talked about the outdoors. That's how we had vacations when I was a kid. My parents would take us to my grandparents' land, and we'd camp on it in Canada. Or we'd go to Vermont, and we'd stay in a lean-to, which is like a three-sided shelter that you would just sleep in in a sleeping bag. Or we'd just drive somewhere, and we'd pull off to the side of the road and camp. And that's what we did. That was my idea of a good time. And when I had my kids, we did the same thing. We camped, we backpacked, we would go somewhere, we would pitch a tent, and we'd camp, sleep, and eat. And since I've gotten back into backpacking, I really enjoyed it. And I really feel that it's something that could benefit not only me. So I wanted to share it with other people. And I've had some friends join me along the way on different trips, some day, day hikes, some overnight hikes, some multi-day hikes. And the more that I do it, the more that I really feel like I'm tapping into the God of Psalm 19.1 that says the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows his handiwork because what a beautiful, beautiful world we can be a part of. What a beautiful thing to be in nature. I'm looking at these paths on either side and I'm like wanting to walk right toward them right now, but I'll hold back. So <clears throat> to get one of my kids into backpacking, I bought her a backpack for Christmas one year. She was like, Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I don't care. Whatever. Um, and then I got an email from the company I bought the pack from because every couple of years, backpack manufacturers update their packs, so they slash the prices on their current stuff so they can bring in their new stuff. And they said, hey, we've got four backpacks of the same kind you already have left, and we'll sell them to you for this real cheap 60% off price. And I thought to myself, I really enjoy taking people backpacking. I really enjoy being in the woods. I like seeing how other people connect with God through being out in the woods and engaging in your ability to do things you didn't know how you could do, like filter water and cook a meal and set up a tent and sleep in it and wake up, wow, I just had a great night's sleep. So I approached my husband <laughs> and I said, I really feel like God is speaking to me, that I need to buy these four backpacks. I really feel that God is telling me to buy these backpacks. And my husband looked at me and said, you're nuts, number one. <laughs> now, my husband said, if God is telling you to do it, then go ahead and do it. So I was very thankful for that. So then after I bought the backpacks, they were empty. And I had to go back to my husband and say, now, I just need to buy the stuff that goes into the backpacks. And he was like, <laughs> So I bought and outfitted four backpacks. I also bought backpacks for a number of my grandchildren and maybe some other people because I just want to see them backpack. But it did get a little cost prohibitive after a while. And then I found out, about an organization that I was already a member of called the Appalachian Mountain Club, that they do this thing. 
And it's an amazing thing, especially when you can't afford to buy backpacks for any more people at the moment. They will take you into the woods and they will train you how to use their gear. And once they have trained you how to use their gear, they will loan it to you for free to get kids and youths and other adults out into the woods, just to reconnect them with nature. It was started as an initiative after Martin Luther King's assassination, where there were riots and there was crime and there was violence, and the Appalachian Mountain Club approached civic and community leaders in Boston and New York and other places and said, we want to help you reconnect your kids, your youth, your young adults, your people, to nature because we believe that there is something better for them than what they're dealing with right now. And those community leaders said, thank you. We accept your help. The only thing that we ask is you teach us how to get our kids out there so we can take them because they have a connection to us that they don't have to you. And the Appalachian Mountain Club said, all right. So they have purchased the gear and they take care of the gear and they store the gear. And once you complete their training, if you're successful in completing the training, you get to borrow their gear free of charge as many times as you want throughout the year. The only caveat is you have to take um, backpacking trips at least twice a year, which, hello, all right, sure, no problem. <laughs> so last month I went to New Jersey, and that's the group that I went with that the picture of was up. Um, there were 15 people to start, but three people didn't want to get dirty and be in the woods for four days, so then there was 12 of us, and we were broken up into two groups of six people and two trainers. And throughout this four-day backpacking trip, I had to borrow their gear, so I couldn't use my nice light pack. I had to use their big, heavy honking pack. My pack right now, because I don't have my tent in it, weighs about 14 pounds. Their packs with all the gear loaded up weighed about 40 pounds. So they're no joke. And they made us carry like real food. Like I carried this jar of hummus for four days. And by the fourth day, I was like, I'm eating this hummus. And I, I ate Oreos dipped in hummus for breakfast because I was all done carrying that hummus. I'm like, no, I'm done. I don't care what it tastes like. I'm eating it. That's my breakfast. And it's not bad, by the way, if you ever want to try it. So they gave us a lot of different scenarios and team building activities and trust activities so we could learn how to trust each other. Because we had no, we, I didn't know any of these people. I was the oldest person in my group by 10 years. I thought for sure I was going to be the slowest person in my group. And everybody had to take turns leading hikes. But a couple of times, the 30-year-old guy behind me was like, slow down. <laughs> so that made me feel good that I wasn't the slowest person. Um, but I didn't know. I mean, a lot of them have their, the culture that they're in as a 30-year-old or a 20-something. I'm not in that culture. I don't know the lingo. I wasn't singing all the songs that they were singing. But you know something? Everybody made me feel like I fit in. Everybody accepted everybody else. It was a level playing field. And we had to learn to trust each other in a short, concentrated period of time. We had to help each other with our packs. We had to help each other set up camp. We had to help each other cook dinner. We had to help each other clean up dinner. We had to help each other tie knots. We learned things about being in the back country that you only learn if you're in the back country. So on day three, our, our leaders wanted us to do an exercise with a partner. And it was an exercise in vulnerability. <laughs> and so they challenged us to pair up with somebody else, to find somewhere quiet, and to hand each other our instruction manuals, and to ask this question of each other. Who are you? Yeah. 
So I paired up with another female. We walked out on that beautiful ridge line that the picture was of. She said, I'll go first. I said, all right, that works for me. So I said to her, who are you? And she began listing who she was. I'm a woman. I'm a sister. I'm an aunt. I'm a teacher. I'm a neighbor. I'm a friend. And she got to about 10 things. And then she started getting a little emotional, which I don't know. OK. She was like, I have to stop now. I said, OK, I'll go. And she said, OK. And I handed her my notebook. And she said, who are you? And when our leaders told us that was going to be the exercise, I mean, I, people, everybody knew where everybody worked. People knew I worked at a church. I hoped that I walked my talk instead of talking it. And maybe they knew I was a Christian, but maybe they didn't. You can work at a church sometimes and not be a Christian. Um, but I knew when the instructor said, you're going to have to answer this question, I knew the first thing that I needed to say. So when she looked at me and said, who are you? I looked at her and said, I'm a child of God. Because that is my number one identity. It has to be my number one identity. And then I said, and I'm a wife, and I'm a mother, and I'm a grandmother, and I'm a sister, and I'm an aunt, and I'm a daughter. And after I listed my list and I didn't have anything else I could think of, she said, you know what? I'm ready to go again. I said, all right. So I took her notebook, and I was ready to write things down. And she pulled this piece of paper out of her pocket. She's like, I want to read this piece of paper to you. I said, OK. And she opened the piece of paper, and it was a list that had been typed up. And are you guys familiar with who I am in Christ, the list? There's a, there's a list that floats around. It's a piece of paper. It's basically scriptures that tie who you are to what God says about you. It has Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I am accepted in the beloved. I have been created. I am loved. I am accepted. I am chosen. I am significant. And it all ties into scripture. And she just read this whole thing to me. And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Me too, sister. Hallelujah. It was like we were having a little church right there on that ridge line. I'll tell you what. I appreciated that training. I, so, I got so much more out of it than I thought I would. And I really appreciate the fact that now I'm going to be able to borrow 12 full sets of hiking and backpacking gear. But that moment on that ridgeline with that woman is probably one of the greatest moments of that whole four-day trip because she felt vulnerable enough and trustworthy enough to tell me who she really was. And I doubt that anybody else in our hiking group knew that about her. I certainly didn't know about it for the first three days. And she and I worked very closely together a number of times because we were the only two women in the group. So we had to work together. And it wasn't until that moment that I knew that she was my sister in Christ because she trusted me enough to be vulnerable with me. We need to grow from that place of self-trust to that place of hopefulness in our choice to trust, to that place of carefree trust. And that place of carefree trust sets us up for having confidence in God. Did you know that there is a big correlation between increase in trust and increase in faith? If we would say, as David did, that we were scared and nervous, but we were still going to seek refuge from God as an inroad to fully trusting him.
if we would not look at the crookedness of our path, the one that we have been on, and trust instead that God was leading us and directing us on it, if we would trust that God would redeem the tragic circumstances of our lives, including our failures, including the trials in life that nobody's immune to, and know that he still had a plan beyond our pain. If we would trust God the same way that Charles Blondine's mother trusted him to get her over a wheelbarrow on Niagara Falls, if we would realize that trusting God would give us the confidence we need to tell the story of our path with others and be willing to get vulnerable as we share our foundational beliefs and the core of who we are. Maybe you're here today, and you're me. You're 25 years ago, Sue, and you don't trust God, and you're not even sure why you're here or who I am. That's fine. <clears throat> Pastor Ron's away, but I can guarantee you when he comes back, I'm one of his disciples, and he doesn't look like a whole like more different than this. He is going to have stuff on the stage. He is going to come back dressed in a backpack, so... Uh, come back when he and Pastor Susan are back, but you're probably going to get some of the same because serving God's awesome, and God is a creative God. But maybe you are here, and you've never put your trust in God. Maybe you're here, and you've chosen, I'm going to trust God with some things, but I'm scared to trust God with everything. Maybe you're here and saying, I don't know God, like Naomi or like Ruth, I don't know this God, but I want to get to know this God. I'm going to ask you to join me in a simple prayer. And for those of you who do know the Lord, I'm going to ask you to reaffirm your faith with us. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. And it's a simple, you don't have to get up out of your seat, you can be right where you are, but if you don't know Jesus, this is an invitation for you to get to know him. It starts today. It's a decision you will not regret. It's the best decision I ever made. And you'll start on a path today that you're going to carry on for the rest of your life if you choose to trust him. Would you join me? Dear Lord, I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for your mercy. Help me learn how to trust you. Help me to put my trust and my hope in you. I believe that Jesus came and died on a cross for me, for my sins. And that he didn't stay on the cross. But that he had the ultimate victory. He rose from the dead. He offers me an abundant life. He promised. He would be with me. In every trial. And he would be on the other side of that trial, giving me a high five. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.